But can the church be united in the same mind and same judgment? Yes. Uh, and the reason I know that is because reading 1 Corinthians 1.10, he says you can and you should be. The church should be united. And throughout the whole text, this wonderful book is an encouragement. There's a reason why Paul's first epistles are Romans and 1 Corinthians. There's so much in them. And soon we're going to start a reading coming next Sunday on the book of Romans. And we're getting into that. And I, I wanted to make sure that we read the book of Galatians before we get into Romans. Because a, a lot of people who struggle with the book of Romans, if they would read another book like Galatians, it would help them. And then reading Galatians, some people read Galatians and say, I don't know what it's saying. So then they read Romans. And they both help each other and help us to understand them. And, and that's exactly what we were doing with Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon too. But can the church be, be, be united? Yes, definitely. Can the church un, unite in doctrine? Well, Paul says, yes, you should be united in doctrine in what you're teaching. In the cross of Christ is the wisdom of God. Can you be united in discipline against anyone practicing sin within the congregation? And stand up against that and encourage whoever that is to repent. Yes, you can. And withdraw from them when they don't. Can we stand for purity? Yes. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So we've got doctrine, 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 4. Discipline, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, purity, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Living a holy life because the Holy Spirit dwells within you and you're the temple of God. And then 1 Corinthians 7. Can we agree on marriage? Is marriage important? Are there, are there certain things that we should do to encourage our, our marriages and make them stable? Yes. What do we do when we might offend our brother in one of our actions? We wouldn't want to offend their conscience. We want to be mindful of those who are weak. So can we be united on that? 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 10 teaches, yes, we can. Can we, we be united and maintain the traditions that are from God, the God-given traditions, not the traditions of man, but the traditions of God? Can we be united on that? Yes. Spiritual gifts. So the traditions, that's 1 Corinthians 11. The spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 12. The love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. We want to be united. We need love. The assembly, 1 Corinthians 14. The resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15. And tonight, we look at the collection. And we could wrap it up in, in the idea that we can stand firm and be the Christians we need to be. Because we serve one another. And the, the conclusion tonight is very simple. And how Paul brings this together. He does it in love. And he shows the harmony in this congregation where they should be going and working together. I love this book. We've been studying through 1 Corinthians. And I look for it as laying a foundation of, of beliefs and where we're going and unity together. Something that all churches need. You know, if I knew a congregation that was struggling with unity and with doctrine, I'm going to tell them you need to do a detailed study of 1 Corinthians. You need that foundation. Let's begin here. We hear this passage read almost every Sunday morning or commented on or referenced to. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 4. This is what Paul says here. Now, let, I'm going to give you a little bit of backdrop first. I want you to think about this. 1 Corinthians 14, he talks about the order of the assembly, right? 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about the resurrection. Is there a connection with those two? They, is there a reason why they would be together? I think you already know that. Oh, you're going to see it right here at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 16. 
Now concerning the collection for the saints, there is the collection of the saints. I'm going to lay that out there to, to think about. Because some people have said this is all temporary. In one sense, yeah, it is. Because it is for certain those who are going through distress and disaster relief. Much of the giving in the scriptures is for disaster relief and for supporting evangelists and helping uh, who, who are doing it full time to present the gospel. We see that in 1 Corinthians 9. Okay, so now concerning the collection of the saints as I directed the churches of Galatia. Remember, the, the, you just, if you're reading the book of Galatians, you realize it's not to one church. It is to the churches in a region and an area of Galatia. Paul has given them the same instruction, the same command. Galatians on the other side of Asia Minor. It's across the Aegean Sea from, from Corinth. And if you look out on a map, they're far apart. It would make more sense to me that Paul would say, listen, I told all your friends, the congregations up in Macedonia, and here you are in Achaia. Y'all need to be doing this together. We're going to get the collection together. Now, he does encourage them by the giving in Macedonia. But it seems to be an emphasis here. They're collecting and getting ready over in Galatia. Here you are in Achaia in Greece. You need to be doing the same. The same instruction applies wherever you are. He says, so also you are to do. If they're doing it, you do it. He says, on the first day of the week, and so we have this reference here, first day of the week. There's the connection, right? 1 Corinthians 14, assembly. 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection. When did Christ rise from the dead? First day of the week. When do we assemble? First day of the week. When's the collection? It makes good sense here as we read this. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. So the congregation is to store it up. There is a, a collection together. As he may prosper, so there may be no collecting when I come. And so the idea of the collecting as well is here he is. He's going to get these things together to take care of uh, those who are in Jerusalem who are about to go through a difficult time. And, and it's wise in this. It's, you don't get together and then start taking the collection. You're gonna, the collection is going to work much better. People are going to have what they promise to have as you collect on the first day of the week. And he says, And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I like what Paul also does here. He makes sure there's nobody's, nobody's going to make an accusation against him. There are men that you respect are going to go with this money, with this gift, and bring it to Jerusalem and what they're facing. He, he's smart about that. Um, as a minister, I, I don't, oftentimes people will come up and say, I missed the collection and they'll hand me a check or something. I don't like that. I usually say, go give it to one of the elders or the deacons. And I'm not, I don't really want to touch that part of it. And Paul is wise about it and cautious as well. And you can see his caution. You see how genuine he is here. You see that Paul's not about uh, the money or getting his hands on it or anything like that. He's really wanting to help those out in Jerusalem in relief. And so let's just talk about it a little bit as we're getting a picture of the church here. Must the church have a collection? Yes. And it talks about the collection. There's, there's definitely a need for it and for us to be giving and doing that, making a priority of it. One great thing about us giving and planning to give, which I think is implicit in this scripture, is that when you plan to give, it also causes you to set your budget. Okay, I'm going to give this amount. I look at in, in what I have. I think about uh, Hebrews chapter 7, the example there where the writer of Hebrews talks 
of the, the giving of 10%. And he says, listen, the old law, the giving to the priest, it was 10%. He says, but it, 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 it existed before them. It existed in the man Abraham by faith who gave to uh, Melchizedek. He was the high priest in Salem. You read about that over in Genesis chapter 14. The point is, is this, is that it's also outside the law. And it's a good thing to do that, to, to set a basis of, of at least 10%. And as Christians, I think we should endeavor to do more. And it might not be 10% to the, to the collection. It, it may be what we're giving and then giving some more to those around us, those who we see, our, our neighbors and those that we see in need and those within our family. So our giving doesn't stop with just saying, well, I've put something in the collection plate. This person I know in my family or this neighbor, I have no responsibility for them. No, certainly not. The Bible teaches us to say, if you see someone destitute or any brother or sister in Christ in need of food or clothing, don't just wish them well and say, God bless you, and I hope that you get fed and clothed. You have the responsibility and the capability of doing that. So as we've also noted here, we see the assembly. In 1 Corinthians, you have the Lord's Supper that is mentioned. You have 1 Corinthians 14. You've got teaching there. You've got prayer. You've got singing here, 1 Corinthians 16, the conclusion of it. You've got the collection. You, you get a picture of what the assembly looked like in the first century. The first thing, the priority when they gathered together was the Lord's Supper. Remember, they were to wait for one another, 1 Corinthians 11. And so what was happening first? Well, initially, it's the Lord's Supper is at the beginning of the assembly. And then you would have the teaching and prayers, and singing. And when would the collection occur? Was it a part of the assembly? Well, I can't tell you right now that in the assembly that they had the collection. I don't think it's right or wrong either way. If you had the collection box out in the back, um, or if you take it during the assembly. And I think in times past, as I've studied church history, it used to be there is a box. And you've got kind of a biblical picture of that with the temple in the, in the Bible. We've seen some amazing things. And we need to think about the assembly and how important it is. I think a lot of times people downplay church and gathering together. They don't think about the importance of it. You go to the book of Hebrews and you read it. Not just Hebrews 10, 24, it says not to forsake the assembling of ourselves or the assembly of ourselves together. Talking about the main assembly when we gather together. He says this, that we need to be encouraging one another and gathering together and speaking to one another because there is an evil, unbelieving heart that can grow up in someone if they're not in the assembly, if they're not with other Christians. It's a real thing. And I think some people think, well, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, and I'm going to go to, um, I'm going to stay home or I'm going to watch church on television or whatever. And they are really missing the need for a family and being together. And one thing that stands out to me going through 1 Corinthians is the importance of the assembly so that we do not fall away from God. And I think a lot of people deceive themselves and say, well, I still believe in God, therefore I haven't fallen away from Him. Or are you close to Him? Are you, are you diligently doing good works? Are you living in sin? Christians assemble together, we share together, we work together, and tonight, that's what we're going to get from Paul. As Paul wraps up this and concludes this letter, this is what he's telling us. You collect, you share together, you work together, and you look to those who are serving in the congregation. Those who are doing the work of ministry, they're natural leaders. So one thing that 
we see in 1 Corinthians, it doesn't appear, there appear to be a large congregation, estimates are 200 or more in this church. They're probably meeting in an old synagogue from reading Acts chapter 18. Because some of the converts, the ruler of the synagogue, the guy whose house was built onto it, they're probably meeting there. But they don't have, they don't have elders. To me, as a minister, sounds like a little bit of a nightmare. I don't know what you would think, Garland, but... To not have elders in a large congregation. You need leaders. And so he's going to emphasize something here in a moment that you have leaders among you. And this is true here in the, in the congregation. When we look to our elders, they're doing what we would expect these leaders who are doing here. Okay, so this is what we see. 1 Corinthians 16, Paul also, Paul also communicates with him. He says, I want to come to you, but I've been distracted. But what's keeping you, Paul? What's it, what, and they're, they're eager for him to be there to help them out through this difficult situation. Look at verses 5 through 7. He says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia. That's usually the way. He doesn't go across the Aegean. He crosses north through, the Mas, through Macedonia and comes down to them. He says, For I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you, even spend the winter. I want to spend some time with you, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I want to spend some time with you. And he says, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Something's going on here. He, keep, he goes on and explains here. He says, the reason I'm not coming to you is because in Ephesus where he is, he has an opportunity. He says, a door is open to me to do great work. And so you can see that. I, it's understandable. And I know that a lot of congregations need ministers today they need evangelists those who are are working and i think the, a lot of the ways in which paul did things and the way that he organized and he was kind of a central he was a central figure and he had these men he was training and sending them to different churches we need a lot more of that it feels like some of our schools are very much dis, disconnected from our churches um some of our, our older ministers, are they training younger ministers? I think they should be active part in it. I think I've been very blessed to be able to work under uh, other men, ministers. And I think about them, specifically uh, Rachel's grandfather, Jim Sullivan. And I was able, he, he's the one that took me. He's like, took me into the hospital and helped me to, to do a better job of, of sitting and talking and, and praying with others and to feel more comfortable at that than I probably would have never been. He helped me to, to be mindful of very specific details and not to overlook things within the ministry that some ministers overlook. What was keeping Paul from Corinth? He says here in 1 Corinthians 16, 8-9, but I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. So in Paul's mind, he's still in the Jewish mind, he's still thinking about the different festivals and events within Judaism. Not that he's keeping them, but he's thinking, okay, I'm going to stay in Ephesus until early summer, and then I'm going to try to move around and come to you and stay with you by winter. That's what we're reading here. 1 Corinthians 16, 8-9. It says, But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So he's in Ephesus, and evidently the gospel's spreading, but the gospel spreads oftentimes when the enemy is saying, do you know, know what this man is saying? And so it is, he has the adversaries that he is also standing against. 
I think that was some of my reservation in, in leaving the congregation in Jacksonville is my concern was, well, we've got this issue here and this issue here and this individual over here who's caused a lot of problems. What's going to happen um, when I leave? Because I, I know one of my elders is struggling and another elder is struggling. But I thank God. Things worked out very well. It was God's blessing to open a door. And you might look in certain parts in your life and say, God has opened a door to me to come into an opportunity to be able to serve and work for others. And I hope that we look at our life in that way, that we're going from one open door to another. That we're looking and saying, I had this opportunity, now things are changing in my life, but there's good that's going to come from it. I'm going to make sure that I'm an example of Christ, that I glorify God, and that I'm sharing the truth with others. So those references to open doors, Paul's used them before. I got those up there. To proclaim the gospel. That's what they are. And I think there's a lot to think about when you think about open doors. I like the description of, we want to make sure that the front doors of the church are open and the back doors are closed. As a congregation. We want to, as many people as possible to come in and to fellowship with us. There's so many things that we can think about as far as application in regards to open doors. I think another thing is, is when we talk to other people and we think, well, I talked to them about the gospel, they didn't respond to it. But you know what you have done? You've opened a door. When you finish a conversation with sharing the gospel with somebody else, leave the door open and tell them, the more you want to talk about this again, you call me, text me. If I see you again, you come to church, the door is always open to you. There's a lot to think about in the concept of an open door. So every Christian's plans, you know, they're contingent on the Lord. You might not understand why things change in your life, and, but if you, you're, you open your eyes and you pray to God, you're going to see that He has put you where you need to be. And He's going to use you. 1 Corinthians 16, 10-12. Paul has sent others to Corinth. He wants this church to be encouraged. And this is what we read. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you. For he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. Don't distress him. Don't put too much on him. Let him do his work. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace. That he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with other brothers, but it was not at all his, not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has an opportunity. And we do know that he has come to them and will... Evidently, he's planning to come back to them. You've had the influence of Paul and Apollos on this congregation, and Timothy as well. You see how the ministers are working together, and, and I, I miss that. I don't have that fully here in Thomasville yet. But the preachers' meetings in Jacksonville, I was able to have connection with, with certain brothers. And I, I've been able to talk with Lee Jamison and some of the ministers uh, down in Tallahassee. I know Clay Phillips in town. And I look forward to good things happening. But it's good that we're working together and that we are connected with other, other congregations and with their leadership. And when we might disagree on something, we need to be encouraging those churches to go back to the Bible and make the changes that need to be changed. And if we need to make a change, we need to be listening to our brethren as well when they're telling us, do this. I love this instruction here. 
1 Corinthians 16, 13 through 14. So Paul has told us, you know, what's going on. He's, he's told the church at Corinth who's being sent, who's doing what, what work. And the title here comes from right here. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 through 14. Paul says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. It's kind of, an, kind of a military um, presentation and disposition here in, in his speak, be, speech. Be watchful, stand in the faith. Stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Though for the phrase here, act like men, in Greek, that's what it means. It means be manly, is what he's saying. And I think, I don't know, I always thought if I were a woman reading that, that'd be kind of a curious statement. But I think you get what he's saying here. He's saying be strong and, you know, resist any kind of evil. He says, I want you to be stable. And what he's doing is he's laying up a foundation. He says, I want you to be ready, strong, to work together and to do it in love because this is your basis of unity. Let all that you, be, you do be done in love. Everything you do be done in love. You ever heard that passage quoted before? Here it is, 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 14. We've heard it echoed by Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. All that is to be done is to be done in love. And imagine the churches that have had conflict and disunity among them what love would have been done would have would have affected them i think another part of that is while you have love people seem to kind of drift together and uh, some congregations will have cliques and groups and factions like they had in corinth but what brings them together and can unite them listen to this if you have your bible i'm not going to read this passage but first corinthians 16 15 through 18 look at that scripture so Paul urges the congregation, and he says, I want you to be subject to certain men, like Stephanus, who was the first believer, one of the first believers there, and his whole household, and how they're committed to doing the work. I want you to subject yourselves to them. Now, we might think of, well, I'm going to be in subject to the elders, to their leadership. But it's also those who are, are leading in that example. I can, I can think of specific brethren at different ch churches who were not elders or no longer served in that position or once did, or they were deacons, but they keep serving and keep doing the work that they had been doing, and you cannot help but admire them and follow their leadership. Subject to them. And he says, Stephanus, he's devoted to the service of the saints, to the ministry of the saints. The Greek word literally uh, from the word diakonos, the ministry for the, for the Christians there. Be devoted to them. So they don't have elders. What do they have? They have examples. Good examples. They have people who are diligently working in the congregation. And when you're working, and you're working for the same purpose, and you're doing everything in love, that lays down that, that, that basis for fellowship, for unity. So subject yourself to those who work together. What does this congregation need? They needed unity. And he's saying, look at them, these individuals working together. Follow them. Humble yourselves under them and follow their leadership. As Paul begins to, to wrap up here, I can't emphasize this enough. As we read throughout the, his, his epistles, he's often encouraging a congregation to greet one another. How important is it for Christians to greet one another? It's a strange thing if we come in and not say anything and, and sit alone. That's not how family is intended. When you went to Thanksgiving, what is that, two weeks ago, a week ago now? And you went to your, 
family's house? Did you just walk in and not say anything to anybody? You gather together with family? No, you don't do that. And there's a necessity here of Paul has to encourage and encourage the congregation, especially when going through the problems that Corinth has, to greet one another. Show affection to one another. The word, the Greek word phileo, where the word is the word, one of the words for love. It's also the word that's changed philetes, meaning to kiss, or to demonstrate a, a sign of affection toward others. Paul's affectionate to those in the church. He, you can tell he loves and he cares about them. And we need to make sure that's a part of the congregation. Keep it as a part of this congregation, because I believe that we're very affectionate. And we want to continue greeting one another. It's an important thing. And, and we have an instruction and command right here to greet one another and to do it in a holy way. Because I think you can understand that a greeting can be taken in the wrong direction, especially when it's described here as a kiss. So let's read it. 1 Corinthians 16, 19 to 21. He says, the churches of Asia send you greetings. There's Paul. Why is he mentioning Asia? Because that's where he is in Ephesus, the region of Asia, Asia Minor. He says, Aquila and Priscilla, we see where they are, Prisca, are with him together with the church in their house. Send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The emphasis being on your greeting being holy. And he says, and I, Paul, write this greeting with my hand. So I'm greeting you. And I'm doing this with my own hand. I could, he, he could have had the scribe helping, but he, here he is writing. Probably with the help of of Sylvanus with him. But he's doing it with his own hand, emphasizing that important fact. So greeting one another again is a central part of Christian love and unity. And as we've seen tonight, uh, the divided church, it unites when it does wonderful works and it does things together. You know, over this last year, I'm reflecting because we've been here about a year now. And I think about the things we've done together. I think about the work days and I think about the fall festival and I think about BBS. Um, I think about all the studies we've had together. And over the last year, I miss my family over in Jacksonville, but this is my family now. And I feel like you're my family. Everybody in here. And I think that's a, that's a great thing. If you've been in a congregation for a year and they don't feel like your family, something's wrong. So, I appreciate that, and I appreciate your love and affection toward my family, um, and the prayers. Every it feels like almost every time um, we pray together, I appreciate that. Uh, I definitely, we definitely need your prayers. A divided church that can unite is what we've seen t- tonight, as we're finishing our study in First Corinthians. They're united and doing wonderful works. They put aside these petty things. They're focused on Christ. They're focused on the gospel. They're founded on, on morality. They're founded on good, solid doctrine in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. I think it's wonderful. So this is how Paul concludes 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22, and I believe verse 23 as well. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. That seems pretty strong. He just said, do everything with love. And now he's saying, if you don't love the Lord, let him be accursed. Why? You're already accursed if you don't love God, if you don't love Jesus, if you don't recognize who he is. 
I think that's very strong. A church doesn't exist unless you love Christ. And if you love Christ, you're going to keep His commandments. And then he says, Maranatha, our Lord come. Paul looks forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. And all, all Christians should. Again, there's something wrong in your life if you can't declare, oh Lord, come, or desire that Christ come back. And he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is definitely a, a love letter and epistle, even though I'm often scolding in it. But it's more than a love letter, as we've read and studied it over the past few months. And I hope that you've gained a lot. Every time I go through 1 Corinthians, I'm in awe, and I thank God for this writing. We want to conclude tonight with this passage right here from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11. Paul says, and such were some of you. You were sinners. And he gives a list of them. And he says, if you practice these sins, you won't inherit eternal life. He says, but you were washed. You were sanctified. That is, you were made holy. You were justified. That is, you were made just in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. But when does that happen? When am I washed and sanctified and justified in the name of Christ? And throughout 1 Corinthians, you see it very clearly. This is in the moment of baptism. To be baptized in Jesus' name. Tonight, if you have drifted away, you can repent. You can come back to Christ. That's what Paul's saying right here. You've been washed. You've been baptized. Don't abandon what you've committed to and how you've been washed and cleansed by Christ. Stay faithful to Him. Tonight, if you need prayers and encouragement, we encourage you to come right now while we stand, while we sing.